Uh, and so we've called this new series, Eat Your Peas. Anybody, anybody ever heard that growing up, that old phrase, you know, hey, eat your peas? Anybody? No? No? A couple of us? Okay. Uh, well, true confession, I still don't like peas unless they're in like fried rice or something like that. You know, that's, that's about the extent of my pea-eating experience, all right? Uh, for me, you know, I've grown to love Brussels sprouts, but we couldn't really name it Eat Your Brussels Sprouts. It's just not as catchy. I don't know. Um, so, so we called it Eat Your Peas. And really, the, the, the reason we named it that is because even though as kids we didn't really like to eat our peas and vegetables, and those kind of things. Our parents kind of made us do that. They put it on our plate. Hey, make sure you eat that because they knew that that would help us grow and get healthy and, and strong, you know? So it's one of those things that like, even though we didn't like it, we did it and it helped us become strong and healthy uh, as we grew. Uh, and so the same thing with the Old Testament. It's one of those things that sometimes we don't really dig into the Old Testament because there's a lot of weird stuff in there. There's some books we don't really understand. There's weird names that we can't pronounce and those kind of things. And so the Old Testament sometimes is just one of those deals that we're just like, yeah, nah. So, so what we wanted to do is say, hey, no, you need to eat those. You, you need to dive into the Old Testament because to have a true understanding of the beauty of the gospel of, of grace in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, you got to know about, about the law and, and where Israel came from in the Old Testament. And so what you have to understand is, is there's not really these two books going on. It's really from Old Testament to New Testament. It's one story being told in various ways through various voices. So it's the same story that's going to underline. And so our hope in this series is that as we encourage you to, hey, eat your peas, dive into the Old Testament, because here, here, there's some truth in there that we need to understand for today. There's some principles that, that pull out of there that are applicable to today. today. And so that's what we want to do over these next couple weeks uh, through various little stories that, that we talk about. But we wanted to do that and give you kind of a framework to kind of do that. Whenever we do series like this, we like to try and give you a tool that you can kind of just take away and as you read it, go, go through it kind of like this. Well, we came up with this awesome, catchy little thing called Skimmick. Awesome, right? No, seriously, we, we, in our planning meetings, we tried to like get the thesaurus out and come up, okay, style, what's a cool word for style, man? There's, there's not one. It's, it, it is what it is. And so instead of like a catchy little word or phrase, we're, we're going to try and get you to remember these four words over the next, the next couple of weeks as we walk through these. And we'll walk through today. I'm going to walk through the, the, the story we're going to talk about today. I'm going to walk through it in this fashion. And so the first thing you need to understand about an Old Testament story is the style. What's the writing style? Because in the Old Testament, there's different kinds of writing. You know, there's, there's history literature, there's prophetic literature, there's wisdom literature. There's all these kind of, of literatures and writing styles that are present in the Old Testament. So the first thing whenever you dive into any Old Testament text is understanding, okay, how is this written? What's the style of writing that this writer's using, okay? And, and then secondly, right, right on, uh, after that is, is the context, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but, but when the Old Testament was written, the world was a little different. They still thought the earth was flat. I mean, so it's a different context. It's a whole different world. Their little world revolved around this little geographic region. It's not the world that we live in, so it's a different context. So many times you have to look at the context of this passage. When, when did it happen? When did it occur? What was going on uh, in, in the lives of the people that, that this person was writing to? So you've got to understand the style and the context. And then the majority of the time that you're reading, you need to be looking for the message, the underlying themes that exist throughout the book. What's the message, the takeaway? Because again, you've got to approach the Old Testament from the standpoint of it's not a standalone deal. It is telling the same story that the New Testament is, maybe in a different way. So you want to look for underlying themes that maybe point to Jesus or God's grace and those kind of things. And we're going to do that today. That's where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time today in the story that I'm going to share. 
with you out of the Old Testament is, is in the message. What are the underlying themes and principles we can pull out? And then, and then the last thing is, is credibility. There, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that when we read them, we're like, whoa. But when people outside of the church read them, they're like, no. You know, it just, there's no way. And so sometimes you've got to research and find other uh, extra biblical resources or historical documents that, that point back and say, no, here, here's, here's how we know this really happened. Here's how we know this person lived. Here's, here's some things that point to the credibility of this writer, this author, whatever it is. So those four words, style, context, message, and credibility, we want you to carry those with you over the next few weeks as we unpack these. And, and even beyond that, as you, as you begin to dive into any Old Testament passage or story or book or whatever, read it through these lenses uh, and to, to try and find a better understanding. And so today we're going to do that. I'm going to walk through that, uh, these four words as we walk through the story today of uh, just a good old southern tale of Hosea and Gomer. You know, with a name like Gomer, this story is going to be good. Anybody, anybody read this story? Uh, you've heard this story before, a few of you? Awesome. So for some of you, this may be a new story, a, a new kind of thing out of the Old Testament that you get, and that's awesome. That's cool. But for those of you that have heard it, um, just bear with me. We're going to walk through it together today. Um, and so we're going to start off with just the style of the book of Hosea. Hosea is one of the prophetic books in the Bible. There's a section of, of prophets uh, where these prophets are prophesying to the people of Israel and Judah and, and all these things. They're, they're pronouncing these prophet, uh, prophecies of, hey, this is going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And God is speaking to them and they're speaking the word of God. Well, Hosea is encapsulated in the prophetic section. And he's in a little section. He's considered a minor prophet. Okay, So there's a little section of books called the, the major prophets, which is like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are the big dogs. You know, those are, you know, you know they get like 40-some chapters. You know, the minor prophets are, are short. You know, like Hosea, he only gets like 14 chapters to kind of tell his tale. Um, so he's one of the minor prophets, but the, the story that we're going to talk about today has major implications uh, as we go forward into the New Testament, as we unpack it. So he's in the prophetic literature, and he's a little bit different than, than some of the pro- prophecy, uh, prophetic literature, because he speaks a lot in poetry and prose and those kind of things, and, and uh, that, kind of, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of poetry uh, encapsulated in, in um, Hosea's book. And so the first three chapters, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today because it's, it's really Hosea's autobiography. It's his story of his life. And the crazy thing about prophets sometimes is God called them to situations and, and, and places in life that a lot of times their lives would parallel what was going on in the, in the nation of Israel where he called them to. So sometimes their prophecy that they're speaking, they speak it through, through what they're living sometimes, through, through what's going on in their lives. And that's the case with Hosea. What's going on in his life parallels almost directly and correlates with what's going on in the nation of Israel. And so his prophecy is intermingled with the life that he's living. Um, so, so that's what we're going to talk about. So the first three chapters are kind of his story, uh, but you'll see a lot of, of Israel's history and stuff interweave, interwoven into that. And then the last... Um, 11 chapters 4 through 14 really just kind of expound upon the themes that we're going to read today about Israel's rejection of God and his judgment on Israel and then ultimately their return uh, to the Lord their God. And so that's what it's going to kind of, kind of encapsulate the book of Hosea. So that's the style of writing that you're going to see as you read through Hosea. Well, then the next word we want you to understand is not only do you have to understand the style, but you have to understand the context, Okay. So here's a little bit of the context uh, without getting very academic with it and too deep in it. You could go as deep as you want to in the context. If, if you want to nerd out on those kind of things, go for it. Um, but for the, for the sake of this message today, I'm just going to give you just a real quick synopsis of the, the basic context of the world that Hosea was living in. So this prophecy encapsulates the time of somewhere between 750 to 722 B.C. So just think in terms of it's about 700 or so years before Christ comes on the scene, before Jesus comes on the scene, okay? That's when this is kind of coming down the pipe and... Uh, Hosea is here. 
he's a part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And what you've got to understand, during this time, Israel was kind of divided into these two nations. And they each had their own kings, their own deals. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, where, where Hosea was, and his prophecy is kind of all toward, toward the northern kingdom of Israel. And then there's the southern kingdom of Judah, okay? And so we see this, this whole divided kingdom going on. And the cool thing about Hosea is his, his prophecy, his, his story, at the end of it, really, this division is taken away. And we'll read about that in some of the prophecy that, that he puts out there. And they kind of become united in one nation. These two nations kind of fall apart and they become one nation. Um, so that's a cool thing. And what you've got to understand about the northern kingdom of Israel during this time, there, there was a guy named Jeroboam II who was uh, the, the king then. And he, was a, he was a good king, a good ruler, and it was a very prosperous time for the nation of Israel. They didn't lack for things. It was a good time. It was fun to be had by all. It was a great economy. Uh, things were going pretty good. And because things were going good, you know how Israel is. You know Israel be Israelin'. Uh, you know, that things get good and they get sloppy. That's, that's, how, that's how they roll. All right? So, so during those good times, people began to worship money and things and seek pleasures and passions instead of focusing on God and, and worshiping the true God. And so that's kind of the context in which this, this prophecy begins. We see that in, in verse 1. Uh, Hosea, he kind of gives us a little bit of a picture into the context in, in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, The Lord uh, gave this message to Hosea, son of Beri. This is, this is just who he is. During the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were the kings of Judah. So there were all those kings in, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then it says, And Jeroboam, son of Joash, was the king of Israel. So that's the historical context that he jumps into of, Hey, here's, here's where I live. This is the world in which I live. There's this divided kingdom, there's the Judah guys, and then there's us up north with the Israelites, all right? And so that's who, that's who we're talking about, and he jumps in to that. So that's some of the context. And again, today we're going to spend the vast majority of our time on the message of Hosea, the third, third kind of thing. And the message of Hosea is, is pretty clear right from the beginning when you just read his name, because Hosea's name means salvation, so that lets you know right out of the gate there's going to be a strong emphasis on God saving his people uh, throughout the story and the prophecy of Hosea. And we're going to see these three themes as we walk through the scripture today, uh, that there's the big picture of salvation, but it, but it unfolds itself in these three different ways of, of God's mercy and grace to sinful Israel. We'll see the sins of Israel on display uh, through, through the life and the story of, of Hosea and Gomer. But then we'll also see that there's a, there's a holy God and because of that, these sins have to be dealt with. And then finally, we'll end and land the plane at God is supreme love, about his supreme love, about the love of God and how far he's willing to go because he is supreme love. And so we're going to jump right into this story uh, in chapter 1, verse 2. We're going to get in here with Hosea's story, all right? So, so when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute. Hallelujah. That's, the, that's how all good stories start, right? Yeah, so right out of the gate, Hosea's like, here's what the Lord said to me. Go marry a prostitute. Wow. All right, let's keep reading. So that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. Not getting better. We're off to a rocky start already. All right, so let's see. So Hosea, he does this. So he says, this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Again, Hosea and Gomer's life. The story of Hosea and Gomer is going to parallel what's going on in the nation of Israel, okay? So keep that in the back of your mind as we're un un unpacking Hosea's story, okay? Let's read on. It says, So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. Yes, firstborn son. 
And the Lord said, Name the child Jezreel, for I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty and avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. That's an awesome name for a kid. Your kid's going to be named after a slaughter. Yes. Fantastic. Firstborn, great. Let's read on. In fact, I'm going to bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Soon, Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. Oh, baby sis. Good stuff, good stuff. Let's see what happens with baby sis. And the Lord says to Hosea, Name your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, not loved. Man, we're on a roll. That's got to be on the top ten list of baby names in Israel during 750 B.C. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. All right, so we got, we got firstborn son and baby sis. Let's see what happens in, this, in Hosea's story. It says, But I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses or chariots, but my power as the Lord their God. After Gomer had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. Yes, baby boy. It's going to be great. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people. He's on a roll. This is a great family. We got Gomer. That's a winner. <laughs> we got Jezreel, all about murder. We got Lo-Ami, not, 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 my, not my people. We got Lo-Ruhama. You're not even loved. So we got a good family, good family heritage going on here. And then there's just an awesome family going on. So it says, for Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. And so this is the narrative that we're getting into as we continue this, this tale. And so we're going to see some of these themes unpacked as we continue to go forward. Because this, this is the, the setup. This is Hosea's story getting started. Go marry a prostitute. You're going to have these three kids, and they're going to be named after murder and, and not loved and not my people. That's their names. That's what they're going to be called. And that's your family. That's, congratulations, Hosea. You're welcome. That's, that's, that's what we're dealing with. But then we get to see these themes unpacked that we were looking at earlier. And the first one we see is, is God's mercy and grace on display in this story. Okay? So as we continue to read uh, in chapter 1, we pick it up in verse 10. It says, Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, You're not my people, it will be said, You are children of of the living God. So we see this narrative kind of changing, changing because of God's mercy and God's grace. Let's continue to read. It says, Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. That's, that's pointing toward where this, these two kingdoms kind of dissolve and they become one nation. So Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of, of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. In that day you will call your brothers Ami, not, not Lo-Ami, but Ami, which means my people. And you will call your sisters Ruhama, not Lo-Ruhama anymore, but the ones that I love. And so full display right here is a picture of God's mercy and grace. Even in the midst of, of Hosea and Gomer's family, it's pointing again to the nation of Israel. Even though they said, you're not loved, you're not my people. But guess what? Because of my mercy and my grace, I'm going to change your name to, to loved and, and my people. Okay? So keep that on your mind. See, God, he longed to restore Israel. But the problem was they were in the midst of great sin. There was so much going on in the nation of Israel. And, and we get to see it through, through uh, Hosea and Gomer's life as well. See, he longed 
to restore Israel, but the sin had to be dealt with. So we continue reading because at the end of the day, God, he's got to deal with sin because he's holy. He's a holy God. He can't be around sin. He's, he's completely, utterly holy. And so sin cannot coexist in a relationship with, with the holy God, the creator of the universe. And so the sin has to be dealt with. And so there are three main types of sin that we read about in the nation of Israel in this passage. And the first one uh, is idolatry. We see idolatry on display in, in not only Hosea and Gomer's life, but in the life of Israel. So here's what it says. It says, But now bring charges against Israel, your mother. So it's talking about Israel as well as this is, this is Gomer's. This is Hosea's life. This is about Gomer as well. For she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. So this story takes a dark turn because this mother of three, this wife who was plucked out of prostitution from Hosea, called by God to marry her, had this amazing life with these three children. It's going on. All of a sudden, she takes off. Something happens. She's abandoned her family. She's abandoned her husband. They've got a single dad with three kids with these whacked out names. And that's where we're at right now. Hosea doesn't know where she is, doesn't know what she's doing, doesn't know what's going on. She's completely abandoned the marriage relationship. She's no longer his wife. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her as naked as she was on the day she was born. I will leave her to die of thirst as in a dry and barren wilderness. And I will not love her children for they were conceived in prostitution. Their mother's a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. She said, I'll run after other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks. And so we see this picture of idolatry. She, did, she, didn't, she didn't want what God had given her. She wanted something else. She wanted someone else. She began to seek pleasures and things over the relationship that God had given her. Hosea had married her out of prostitution, and she returned back to it. So we see that there's idolatry. See, historically, Israel, if you read the Old Testament, not only here but in other parts of the Old Testament, historically, Israel, they would turn toward pagan gods in times of trouble. And one of the most famous ones is, is whenever there were like droughts and those kind of things, they, they would look and say, God, you, 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 can't, you can't be the true God because it, it can't, we can't be experiencing this famine and this drought and these kind of things. If you were God, you'd really be uh, handling this deal. So they would turn to foreign gods, and one of the ones they turned to a lot of times during the famine and, and, and hard times was, was Baal. And so we'll, we'll read about Baal as we continue to go through. So that was one of the main ones they turned to as a pagan god. But historically, that's what Israel did. When times got tough, they would abandon their true love. They would abandon the God that they knew for foreign gods. They would begin to seek pleasure, things, and idolatry began to take root in their lives. The second kind of sin that Israel was guilty of, as well as, as Gomer, as we'll read on, is, is ingratitude. As we read on, what we'll see ingratitude rear its ugly head. It says, for this reason, I'll fence her in with thorn bushes. I'll, thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. When she runs after her lover, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. And then she'll think, I might as well return to my husband, for, for I was better off with him than I am now. 
She doesn't realize it was I who gave her everything she has, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold. But she gave all my gifts to Baal. But now I'll take back the ripened grain and the new wine I generously provided each harvest season. I'll take away the wool and linen clothing that I gave her to cover her nakedness. And so we see ingratitude taking root. Not only have they turned to foreign gods and chased things that aren't God and made other things their idols, but now they've become completely ungrateful to the blessings that God had given them in the first place. They became ungrateful and, and ingratitude crept into their lives. See, Israel, they would continue to turn to false gods over and over and over again rather than being thankful for the blessings that God had already provided. Whenever times got tough, they would just become in, ungrateful and ingratitude would, would seep in and they'd say, you know what, no, no, I'm going to go look for it somewhere else. Israel was constantly, constantly rebuked. And my, my little bit of study, there may be more than this, but I, and going through the Old Testament, just searching up, you know, times where Israel was rebuked. That's a long Google search, but, but I did it. Times where Israel was rebuked for being uh, ungrateful. There were about 15 or so passages that just came up where, where God said, hey, you need to thank God. You need to be grateful. You need to be thankful. And so it was a consistent rebuke that God would give them for not being grateful for all that he blessed them with, all that he had given them. So we see idolatry. We see ingratitude. And then as we continue to read in chapter 2, we see the final kind of sin that Israel was, was uh, guilty of was, is hypocrisy. There was hypocrisy. So let's read here, starting in verse 10. It says, I will strip her naked in public, while all her lovers look on, no one will be able to rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to her annual festivals, her new moon celebrations, and her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I'll destroy her grapevines and fig trees, things that she claims her lovers gave her. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals will be able to eat the fruit. I'll punish her for all those times when she burned incense to her images of Baal, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me, says the Lord. So now we not only see this happening in, in, in Gomer's life, but in the life of Israel. Even those who, who, who showed up at the temples to worship, who said, you know what, we follow God. We, we're, we're God's people. They began to intermingle their faith with, with those of pagan gods and begin to celebrate these new moon festivals and all these things. And, and it began this mishmash of, of different faiths. And they began to create their own kind of religion. And God said, no, it's hypocrisy. You can't say you love me. And love all these other things. You can't say you trust me and believe in me when you're looking to these other things to provide for you. It's hypocrisy. And it cannot exist in a relationship with me. It's sin. See, sometimes, sometimes the worst thing that God can use as punishment, worst thing that God can use as punishment is just to release you and give you your own way. Oh, you want to do it that way? You want to go over there? Okay, go ahead. I'm going to watch from up here, but I'm, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you make a mess of this. I'm going to let you destroy everything that I've given you real quick so you, can, so you can see what it's like. See, guys, get it wrong sometimes. See, 90%, 90% faithful isn't really faithful at all. You look at your wife and you tell her, I'm going to be faithful to you 90% of the time. And she's going to laugh or slap you one. <laughs> Because that's not how relationships work. You're all in all the time or you're not in at all. And God's relationship is just the same. 
You either trust him completely, wholeheartedly, and are thankful to him fully, or you're not really at all. 90% faithful isn't faithful at all. And so we've got to remember that going forward. And this would be a sad prophecy and a sad story if we ended it there. But thank God that's not the end. And so we continue with Hosea's story, and we get to see the, the last kind of theme that we get, pluck, get to pluck out, and that's that God is supreme love. And I chose those words on purpose. God is supreme love. God doesn't love supremely. He is supreme love. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? It's his character. It's his nature. It's his DNA. It's who he is. He doesn't just love. He is love. He cannot help himself. Do you understand that? He, he loves you. He loves me. He loves us. He is supreme love. It is who he is. And because of that, we get to see this in, in the story of Hosea and Gomer. And the first way we see it is in, in God's promise of his love. Let's read this together. In chapter 3, it says, But then, oh man, what a great turn of events. But then, but then, I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. That's, that's beautiful right there. You, under, you see the difference? Masters have slaves. Husbands have partners. It's a different relationship altogether. It's not about ownership. It's about partnership. It's powerful. It's beautiful. Oh, Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips, and you'll never mention them again. This is getting good, y'all. My Pentecostal is going to come out. I'm just letting you know. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. Mm. In that day, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds, and the sky will answer the earth with rain. Then the earth will answer the thirsty cries of the grain, the grapevines, and the olive trees. And then... And they in turn will answer, Jezreel, God plants. At that time I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself. I will show love to those I called not loved. And, I, and to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. Mm. God is supreme love. It's who he is. He cannot help himself. Now I want to hit the, the last C here in just a second. So we get the promise of God's love, and then ultimately we see in chapter 3 the picture of God's love through the story of Hosea and Gomer. This beautiful picture. This is, this is my favorite part of this whole story. And so let's read it together in chapter 3. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, 
even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I, I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. And then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you're not going to have sexual relations with anyone, not even me. This shows that Israel will go through a long time without a king or a prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord, their God, and to David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and his goodness. They will tremble in awe of the Lord and his goodness. He's good. He is supreme love. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But I want you to put yourself for just a second in Hosea's place. When God says, hey, Hosea, I realize she's abandoned you. I realize she's with somebody else right now. I realize you don't know where she is. I realize that. But here's what I need you to do, Hosea. I need you to go, go find her. Go find your wife. And I'm sure Hosea said, wait, wait a minute, God. Wait, wait, wait. Go find her. Go find her. But she, she's, she's over in that part of town. Go find her. She, she's in that place where men of God, I'm a man of God. Men of God don't go to those places. Go find her. So Hosea, he gets up and he begins that walk into that part of town, into those places. And I don't know all, all the scene, but this is how I picture it with my crazy, vivid imagination. We live in a world of sex trade and trafficking and those kind of things, which is a horrible place, a horrible thing. But that's how my mind kind of pictures it. I see Gomer up on the trading block, naked, exposed, ashamed. And in the back door, she sees her husband walk through those doors. I can only imagine the regret, the shame. And Hosea, he walks up, he says, excuse me, excuse me, it's my wife. The guy, the auctioneer, says, listen, I don't care who you say she is. If you want this woman, here's the price. As I said, but but she's, she's mine. I married her. She's mine. God, God gave her to me. I don't care. Here's the price. So Hosea, he says, okay, I'll buy her back again. I'll buy her back again. It's powerful. See, the, the, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything therein. Everything is God's already, your God's. But you know what it says? Buy her back again. And so Hosea buys her back again. A beautiful picture. And the last C we want you to focus on, we're going we're to come back to some application points, but I want you to see this, is the credibility of Hosea, because that's an important thing. Because you want to know that these people really existed, that this is a real deal. And there's not much in the way of denial of, of whether Hosea lived or not or whether he prophesied or not during this time period. Uh, there's many historical things. And, and we see that just because he was a citizen of the northern kingdom of Israel and, and that he talked about King Jeroboam II being his king. Everything historically lines up. Most of the debate arises around not whether his story is really true or not, but whether Gomer was, was a prostitute pre-marriage in the marriage or after the marriage, and, and most people line up and say, no, it is, it is pretty much the way it's written. It's how most scholars believe. 
So from a credibility standpoint, we, we know that, that Hosea was real. The story is real. What was going on in the life of Israel was real. It was happening. And so I just want to land the plane here on just a couple application points from Hosea's story. And the first one is, if we don't understand anything else about the character and nature of God through this story, you've got to understand that God is gracious. As good as you think he is, he's way better. He is gracious. We see that unfold early in chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, In that day you will call your brothers Ami, not, not Lo Ami, but Ami, my people. And you'll call your sisters Rohama, not Lo Ruhama, but the ones that I love. That's mercy and grace on display at the beginning. God is gracious. He says, look, look, I don't care what they call you. I don't care how you grew up. I don't care where you are right now. I don't care. You know why? Because I am supreme love and I am gracious. And I can change your name and I can change your life and I can change your circumstances and I can make everything new. He's gracious. As good as you think he is, he's so much better. Secondly, we see that you can't ignore this fact that God's holy. We don't like to talk about this sometimes. We don't like to deal with this, but God is holy, and there's no place for sin in a relationship with the holy God, creator of the universe. Sin must be dealt with in your life, in my life, in the life of the church. It's got to be dealt with and rooted out, just like it was in the story of Hosea and Gomer. It had to be dealt with. The idolatry, the ingratitude, the hypocrisy, those words could ring true today in a lot of places. It's got to be dealt with if we're going to ever walk in the relationship that God has for you and for me. See, we can't enjoy God's blessings and forget to be grateful and thankful and continually walk in a, a spirit of repentance. Because he's gracious, he's good, but he's holy. Sin must be dealt with. And then finally, my favorite part, God in Hosea 2, yeah, let me read this verse for context. Sorry, getting, getting excited, getting ahead of myself. It says, I will punish her. Sin has to be dealt with. I will punish her for all those times when she burned incense to her images of Baal, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers but forgot all about me. It says the Lord, we can't forget who our God is. Finally, God is supreme love. It's who he is. He can't help it. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. And we see that beautifully in this story. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 out of chapter 3 one more time. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Even though... She's chasing other things, even though she's given herself to somebody else, even though she's abandoned me. Go find her. Go love her again. The gospel is clear and on full display in this story. I don't know if you caught this. It says, so I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. In the Old Testament, numbers aren't arbitrary. You understand that? These numbers have significance, 15 and 5. Here's why. Because the gospel's clear. The number 15, when you see it in the Bible, it's a picture of rest. It comes after the number 14, which is incidentally deliverance. It's a rest. And the number five 
Whenever you see it, it symbolizes God's grace, goodness, and favor towards humans. You see the gospel? Buy her back, Hosea. Buy her for 15 pieces and five. I want you to buy her back so she can rest in grace. It's the gospel. It's the gospel on full display in this story. Rest in God's grace. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but this is a picture of, of Jesus and us. And I got bad news for you. You're not Hosea. You're the dirty, filthy prostitute on the trading block. And God, he looked down in his supreme love and said, I'm going to walk to those bad places, those places where you were. And I'm going to walk in there. That's mine. No, no, no. Here's the price. What's the price? The price is your son. Walking a dark path, being mocked, beaten, scorned. That's the price. Okay. I'll buy them back. I'll buy them back because I'm supreme love and I cannot help myself. God is supreme love. It's the gospel. We rest in his grace, in his grace alone. And I got four kids, and we always want to raise them right and teach them the right things. And so early on, we, we bought this, this book. It's a Bible of sorts called the Storybook Bible. Anybody, anybody got one of those, seen one of those? Well, we got it, and we started reading it to them early on. It, it, and, and I love it because it's it, it, just what we're trying to do with this series. It tells the gospel story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, takes these, these famous stories and just kind of weaves the gospel in them. And so early on uh, in Genesis chapter 3, as it's telling that story of Adam and Eve and their fall, I remember reading this and, and reading these words out of this simple little children's book, written so kids can understand it. And when I read this phrase, it pricked my heart so bad. I said, holy cow, that's it. It's that simple. That's who God is. And I, want, I just want to share it with you. And here's what it says. It says, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, in spite of your prostitution, in spite of your sins, in, in spite of you abandoning me, in spite of you serving and other idols and, 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 and seeking your own pleasures and things, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Hallelujah and amen. God is supreme love. He can't help it. He loves you. He loves me. And no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what they say your name is, he says you're loved. No matter what they call you, guess what? You're my people. And when you understand this supreme love of God, you're able to just say, you know what? You are my God. It's a beautiful picture of grace, of love, of mercy. God is supreme love. So the final question is, is where are you today? Where are you? What's going on? Are you seeking other things other than God? Is there stuff you need to deal with in your life? Because if there is, it's what you're not walking in a full relationship with him. 90% isn't faithful at all. So where are you just honestly? It's not for me to decide, that's for you and God to work out and talk about. And Trust me though, when you're dealing with stuff and you're on the auction block, he's going to walk in and say, what's the price? Okay, paid. Done. You're loved, you're my people. 
Let's pray. God, I thank you for the gift and the treasure of the Old Testament. Even though sometimes we, we have to dust it off and it gets neglected, but there are beautiful principles and stories within the Old Testament. Now, just as we've read today, God, just the, the underlying principle of how much you love us, how far you're willing to go to rescue us and bring us back to yourself because of your love, because you are love, because you cannot help yourself. And so, God, I pray in, in a room this size, there are people all across the board in their relationship with you. And so, God, I pray for those who are, who are walking with you and feel good, that you would just keep them there and, and keep them ever thankful and grateful for what you've done and what you are doing. God, for those who are on the other end of the spectrum that, that feel right now their life is a mess and they're on the trading block and they're in the midst, they've chased things other than you, God, I pray that you would speak to them right now and, and speak the words, you are loved, you are my people, I have paid the price. God, your gospel is a beautiful thing. And I thank you that we get to see it not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament and displayed in our lives. So God, help us all to be people who walk in, in grace and in gratitude and in humility and in awe of your goodness. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.